Hi, and welcome to Public Speaking with me, David Murray. I'm here to share the tools and techniques so that you can communicate with confidence in your speeches, in your pitches, in your job interviews, presentations, and much, much more. I also offer one-to-one coaching and workshops, and you can find out more and get in touch by visiting me at davidalamurray.com. And so you don't miss out on more resources, make sure that you sign up for my newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. And when you do this, you will get access to all my top tips and free resources for communicating with confidence. If you like what you hear today, please do subscribe and leave a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. By doing this, you will help the podcast reach others who might find it useful. So without further ado, let's begin to communicate with confidence. Hey there, you're listening to the David Murray Public Speaking Podcast. To find out more, you can visit me at davidalamurray.com. Hello, welcome to the show. Today, my very special guest runs a business that helps companies improve their customers' experiences. She lectures at a business school in London and right now she's on a learning journey of her own developing a deep understanding of emotional intelligence. May I introduce you to Sandra Thompson. Thank you Sandra. The reason why I wanted to talk to you today is that I know that you're researching the field of emotional intelligence and I'd like to talk to you about what emotional intelligence is why it's important and how we can apply it in our everyday lives. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. So, emotion intelligence. There's been a lot of talk about emotion intelligence, particularly in the last few years. But in actual fact, um, it's been around for quite a while. The principle is that people have a level of IQ, um, intelligence quotient, and actually you're born with that and that doesn't change. And a chap called Daniel Goleman wrote a number of years ago that you can have emotional intelligence. In actual fact, the distinguisher of high performance in work comes about when you have emotional intelligence. So it's basically saying people can get to a certain level with IQ, but you can hit massive high performance if you have EQ. And EQ, emotional intelligence, is your ability to understand and manage your own emotion, and it's the ability to relate and understand the emotion of others. So what does that mean? It means being content in yourself, and it also means having fabulous relationships with people both in work and both in home. What kind of got your interest in, the, in that whole area? And it's only now, you know, that I'm thinking about where all this came from yeah. because it kind of comes to you as an opportunity. I was, I was asked last November if I'd write a paper. I thought, you know, I'm going to write about emotional intelligence because, you know, there's something in this and customer experience. Yeah. There's an opportunity to bring this skill into a field where I don't think there's enough written about it. So last October, I was invited to write an academic paper. Yep. I decided to write about emotional intelligence and customer experience because I believe that that is the differentiator when it comes to customer engagement. When people are able to understand, when people are able to relate and empathise and build relationships, it means you can make a massive difference to someone's life. Specifically, where then does, your, does that kind of interest really sort of stem from for you? 
There's a couple of places actually where this has kind of come from. I wrote a dissertation, um, a thesis, for a degree a number of years ago, and that's when I was introduced to the idea of emotional intelligence. And actually there's massive statistics that say emotionally intelligent people can do better in organisations. Uh, and about probably 15 years ago, I led quite a big team um, and we were running a number of team exercises where uh, we had to answer a series of questions. It was like a personality profile, actually. And that was the first time I was introduced to self-awareness. So my perception of myself was a fantastic leader that led the way and showed everyone what to do. But in actual fact, when my team gave me yeah. some feedback, which was basically, you keep running off and doing stuff and leaving us in the lurch, that was a real eye-opener. So as far as what emotional intelligence is, and mm. one of the four key areas being about self-awareness, that intervention that, that took place when I was leading that team stopped me in my tracks and made me think, actually, I'm not doing what I think I'm doing, yeah. and I'm not performing as well as I should be performing. So that kind of moment in time made me think far more and made me read actually I read a lot then about Daniel Goleman uh, the guy who popularized uh, emotional intelligence and a whole bunch of other articles and thought yeah there's something in this organizations should be they should be emotionally intelligent people will be much happier if we are and is, is this uh, the idea of this uh, of, of emotional intelligence and having sort of greater awareness of self-awareness is this something that is most is something that organizations will would kind of put in some sort of framework organization wide or is it very much up to an individual to i don't know to seek out that there's a, gr a great question um the majority of organizations that i've worked with the leadership may have been trained to bring out that skill and in other organizations frontline staff have been encouraged to use greater empathy so in actual fact, you see little pockets of it all over the place. Um, my view on it is that when an organisation as a whole, where all people and the organisational culture has greater emotional intelligence, they have much better performance financially and from a health and wellbeing perspective, they're off the scale. So it's definitely about a holistic view because those people who are emotionally intelligent find it hugely frustrating <laughs> dealing with people who are not. It's definitely a reciprocal thing. They, they do their best to understand, yeah. but it makes things much easier for them if they're working within an environment where other people are also able to use that skill. Do you feel this is an important area for organisations to explore? I think it's a game changer, I really do. And that's one of the reasons why I was so keen to write about emotional intelligence and customer experience. And it's also another reason why I'm developing workshops to help people understand what it is. Uh, often people think it's just empathy, and in actual fact, it's much, much broader than that. So sometimes people have more emotional intelligence or they require more emotional intelligence in marketing teams because ultimately you've got to understand your customer you've got to be able to communicate with them and frontline staff totally get it but other pockets of the organization don't so there are frameworks for example goldman's 12 competencies that you can you can take and you can follow and you need to do it in a particular order in order to make progress but as far as organizations feeling the 
financial benefit of undertaking this, I think we're miles off. I think often organisations think it's a bit fluffy, it's yeah. a nice to have, and they don't see the significant difference it can make hmm. to their organisational performance. So something big for organisations is is, there, is the idea of this culture, corporate culture, culture within an organisation, uh, and what that looks like. So it sounds like emotional intelligence is very much at the heart of that. That's right. And I think some organisations that are less rigid, and when I, what I mean by that are those organisations that allow their staff autonomy, confident organisations that allow people to be themselves, that's where you'll find more emotional intelligence skill. In other organisations where the rules are really, really tight and they bring you in to do a particular job and there's no freedom to act in a way that is responsive to emotion, that will be a harder nut to crack, but it's not impossible. I think it's just going to be a longer lead. So is there a link to, within organisations, emotional intelligence and empowering a workforce? So one of the things I've written in my paper is it's great to have emotional intelligence as a skill, but if you have emotional intelligence as a skill, you've got to enable people to act in the most appropriate way. And what I mean by that is that someone on the phone can very easily say, I completely understand where you're coming from, it must feel like this. And that's going so far, I'm feeling valued, I'm feeling that someone's listening to me, they understand, but they need to act on those words. So if they then continue to say, but unfortunately I can't return that good, or we can't deal with that because the rules, the processes, the procedures don't allow that, mm -hmm. then it can only go so far. So I guess in answer to your question, what my paper says is get people skilled in emotional intelligence and secondly, make sure you allow these people who have got the emotional intelligence to then follow up with an act of thoughtfulness because that is the point of differentiation. There are dozens of stories out there of people who have gone the extra mile, who have done extraordinary things and from a customer's perspective and actually from a colleague perspective, those things stay in your mind because someone has really thought about you, they've got your back. Uh, and that's quite unusual in the fast-paced rush that we all find ourselves in every day. Yeah. You mentioned in some organisations, maybe the in the marketing space, emotional intelligence might be more at the forefront than in others. Now, do you feel that there is a disconnect between different parts of an organisation when it comes to empowerment and emotional intelligence? I think it comes down to where people feel they need to use it. And that's why there's, I think, three pockets of application for emotional intelligence. So number one, there's the customer staff interface where you can be empathetic, you can help customers deal with certain things. That's one part. Second part is where colleagues work with one another. So imagine front office and back office. Imagine um, a bunch of people who are on the front line need certain things to change. Well, they're going to go and talk to those people who are in finance or in policy or operations. The ability to have that objective and progressive conversation means that both parties need to be emotionally intelligent. Yes. So actually it's not just the front line, it's not marketing, it's every department because in order to have non-threatening, non-defensive, progressive conversations, you need to meet each other uh, in a way that is helpful and supportive and respectful. And the third area is how leaders encourage more of those behaviours. And I think that's 
where a lot of the focus has been in the past. The great thing about customer experience is that one of the requirements is organizations, all departments within organizations have to get on and they have to want to make the change. And I think the secret source is enabling them to use this skill called emotional intelligence to want to make the change. Yes. You know, there's so many projects out there where there's lots of things that companies can do mm. and nothing happens. Yes. So that's an interesting point you make there about obviously revealing or showing companies that there is a, there is a need to make this change within the organisations. Because I guess emotional intelligence might, to some would just be a, a labour. But if you could sum up um, the essence of it in one or two sentences, is it possible? So if somebody was listening to the show and thinking, well... I, I'm interested in that. I think in the simplest form, it is understanding how you feel and understanding how other people feel to get the best result for everyone. That sounds quite woolly, but ultimately there are, there are four areas here. There's your own awareness, so knowing how you feel at certain times, there's being able to acknowledge, to see how other people feel, and then there's your ability to manage those emotions and to develop relationships. Yeah, something that really connects with me is this idea about self-awareness and managing yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that, what that means within, within this, the emotional intelligence framework? Sure, so I'm going to give you a couple of examples, actually. Um, so there are particular things that trigger me and what that means is if something happens I know it's going to make me cross or it's going to make me frustrated and that means that the person who's done the thing that has caused me that uh, I'm, I'm potentially going to say something that I'm going to regret or I'm going to behave in a way that is not helpful to the situation. So for example when people are late for meetings for some reason, I have a massive problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it means that, uh, and, and I'm working on it, this is all work in progress, but it means that when someone does turn up late, for whatever reason, I'm able to deal with that and I'm aware that I'm starting to get frustrated, but having the awareness of that and managing that means that when they do finally make contact and we, they rock up, I'm absolutely calm. And if you think of any time where you've been, you've been, I don't know, rattled, it's not helped anything, anyone, because you have to then reset yourself, you end up apologising to the person more than likely, and actually it's just a great big waste yeah, of time. Very true. And that can happen in meetings. I've been in meetings before now where I can see people responding aggressively to a suggestion that I'm making. Yes. It was never my intention, but my job as a consultant is to challenge and by being able to see that in the body language, I'm able to address it. And that's one of the great things about this emotional intelligence is yes. having an awareness of yourself and being able to see what happens in others means you can manage things so much more effectively. Yeah, I really agree with that. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about these meetings or meetings in general. How, when you're aware of your own state, how can, what would be your top tips for looking for indications of what state other people are in? So I think the first thing is to make sure that you're in a good place and what that means is to breathe. <laughs> it sounds yes. really really yeah. simple but one of the other great things about uh, emotional intelligence is the mindfulness element and the fact that you are in the best state, the best 
peak state that you can be in. So that's the first thing is to, is to just regulate your breathing, being calm, yes. being open, being receptive to what's going on. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to really, really listen. So uh, Tom Peters talks about listening fiercely and that's all around complete concentration on the way that things are being said, the language that's being used, the language that's not being used and also watching out for body language. So you'll be able to see in a meeting who is engaging, who's not. You'll be able to see from the types of questions being posed, whether people are on the right lines or not, and whether you need to put something into the meeting to make sure everyone is on the same page. But overall, I think to listen actively and to respond and to make eye contact is really, really key. And I think sometimes if you're not clear in a meeting as to what is intended by the person who's speaking, check in and say to them, you know, I just want to check what I've heard or can I just play that back to you? And that is huge for people because it means not only are you respecting their contribution, you're making sure you have completely understood. There's so many distractions in modern life now and I know when I attend meetings occasionally, in the past people would, because people now have laptops in the workplace now and they'll bring the laptops to a meeting and you get a feeling that they're not necessarily fully engaged in the in that particular session because they're they might be listening or maybe they're half listening, but they're also looking down at the laptops. It doesn't feel there's a lot of engagement in terms of rapport and eye contact and all those things because there is a number of other distractions. So, your what would be your top tip for having an effective meeting? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I think having the the structure and the focus. Um, not surprisingly, I really like an agenda so that I know I can go into the meeting knowing what's going to be spoken about. So I might have done a bit of research before I've rocked up. Putting phones and laptops away. I know a lot of people make notes while they're in meetings on their laptops, but sometimes that can be a bit distracting. Inviting them, and, and that's an intentional word, to invite them to perhaps turn their, their email uh, off. Uh, I mean, I just want to share a really interesting fact. A couple of years ago, Deloitte did some work. Uh, they said that in the States, so in the US, People are distracted nine billion times a day by their phone. So inviting people perhaps to put their phones away and actually making sure that they know that you're only going to be taking up this much time of their life for that day. And here's what we're going to end up with when we leave. Isn't it going to be a great investment of time? Moving people along gently, but encouraging them to conclude their point, making eye contact and, and summarising really quickly on what the tasks need to be done by the end, and then that's it, you're done. Yeah. Imagine how much time you'd save in meetings if, if there were if people implemented all those top tips. Do you know, the yeah. funniest thing is that one of the assessments we have for our students, our first year students, is to run a meeting. And when I read about this assessment, I thought, this, is, this can't be right. And then I thought about the amount of time I spend in meetings that are a waste of time sometimes, or they could have been wrapped up by a stand-up meeting where everyone stands and everyone needs to move along pretty quickly in half the time. So teaching them these skills, I'm hoping will set them up for life. 
they'll get at least a few days back every year of their life. I agree. And, and also, you mentioned, to go back to something you mentioned before, is that when you are, whether it be in meetings, whether you're having a one-to-one -one conversation with, with, with somebody or with, with your public speaking or anything, eye contact is so important. And you can't be doing that if you're distracted by your phone, distracted by your laptop. Absolutely. And another thing that I, I often run in training sessions, and I certainly teach my students, is when you're introducing yourself, if you can just be able to tell me the colour of the eyes after, then I know that you've paid attention. Now, there's obviously the line between totally staring and making someone feel difficult, but definitely locking in, you feel like you are present and you feel like you have been heard. It's a great tip. Sandra, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sandra. I wonder if we can talk about an article that you wrote recently. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. I'm going to quote you now, that's okay. And this is your, these are your words. How a better understanding of memory and the application of emotional intelligence could lead to happier customers and more engaged staff. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, of course. So when I was doing the research for the paper, I understood there to be two different types of memory. There's the experiencing memory, which basically lasts about three seconds, and there's the remembering self, which is the storybook that you create. The fascinating point that Daniel Kahneman talks about, he's a behavioral scientist, he basically says that mundane things get swept away for far more exciting things, which are kind of, kind of makes sense, right? But if you have an expectation before you go into an experience of something happening and it meets that expectation, well, that's fine, there's a tick box. If it doesn't meet that expectation and it's shocking, you're gonna remember that because it didn't meet, it fell far short of your expectation and that's, that's a bad thing. However, if something amazing happened, and that could literally be a very thoughtful gesture, gesture. it doesn't have to cost a great deal of money, but it could be a random act of kindness, then that is something that will create a positive memory. So what I was trying to express within the paper is that when people are emotionally intelligent, they are very likely to do something that is hugely meaningful for the other person. They might do something like order, I don't know, some theatre tickets and give them to you as a surprise. They might just even make you a cup of tea when you're looking stressed. I did that once for a colleague and she has never forgotten it. It's as simple as that. So the point here is that there's only a certain amount of space in your brain. You're going to remember the stuff that's either really positive or really negative. People love positive stuff, not surprisingly. And staff are hugely engaged when they get that response back from a customer of appreciation. It's a mutual thing. You're recognising the member of the public, the, the customer, and that customer is recognising that act by smiling or thanking or just the look on their face of surprise and delight. That's what I, I kind of meant by that particular statement. Yeah, and I read something else in your, in your article which said that where a customer expectation has been met and everything runs smoothly, it's unlikely to make an impact, which means customers won't remember it. So this is, feels counterintuitive. So if I go into a shop, uh, sort of shop tomorrow, or anybody goes into a shop tomorrow, and everything goes okay, go in, get what I want, come out, even though you know everything ran smoothly, I got I got great service, but because nothing stood out, I won't necessarily remember that experience as a 
is that I won't remember it in the positive context, or I just won't remember it. You won't. You you won't remember it. Um, and the, the the thing with that is there are two things actually. As consumers, our expectations are going through the roof. You know, we have so many things that make our life easier. Things are faster. So actually, you're not comparing that shop to another shop. You're comparing that shop to the fact that you just did three clicks on your phone and something's arriving later tonight. You're comparing your overall life with that experience. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that because experience or service or interactions with goods and with uh, you know products and services is so mundane, so bland, so often, you don't remember a thing, but you are absolutely going to remember the member of staff who said to you, oh, what, what are you doing? To, oh, actually, we're going to the theatre. Let me hold those bags for you. And do you know what? I'm going to make sure that my colleague, da 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 da, yeah. uh, do you want a cup of tea before you go off and do that? You, mm -hmm. you know, you just got off the train from somewhere. You know, that degree of I've got your back. I'm looking out for you. I'm, yeah. uh, I'm on your side. That is going to stay with you because that is an exception to the norm. It stands out because people just do not do it because no one has time for it. That's the thing that will create the memory. And that's outside of bland, it's outside of expected, and that's where the indelible yeah. thing happens. Is it getting harder nowadays? Are, is people's expectation about the kind of experience or service they want so high now that it's harder for, for organisations to create a more positive customer experience? I think it... I think it is harder from a product experience perspective and what I mean by that is I don't you know technology is a, an amazing thing but the fact that I can order something at noon and it's arriving with me a few hours later for example from a from a kind of functional perspective anything is possible but I think the important thing here, which I don't think is hard if people do practice emotion intelligence, is being human and being thoughtful. That isn't hard, but it's not often practiced. Yes. Can I talk about uh, bad experiences now? Well, you mentioned in your article that, quote unquote, when a bad experience happens and staff take action, you, t you consider to be relevant, and they create a better outcome for you, the brand has made a positive impact on you. So are you saying that when things do go wrong, it's important what you do to remedy that for the customer? It's absolutely the case. So there's this thing called peak end rule, and it basically says, and this is another Daniel Kahneman um, uh, theory actually, and this is basically saying, here is your experience end to end, in that experience there are a whole bunch of things that were fantastic and at the very end something went wrong and actually what happens there in our minds is that all of the great things that happened are they vanish and you are you keep hold of the thing that was bad now that's not the end of the world because actually when you recover and that's the term they're using customer experience when you recover well you're actually able to make a hero out of the organization and that's why, for example, I shop at John Lewis because there is no question. When I take a good back, even if I don't have the receipt, even if I don't have the bag, even if it's scrunched up, 
they will take it back. There's no query. If we think about everyday life and we think we've got an issue with something and then it is so difficult because the procedure or the policy means you can't bring that back within 30 days or I'm terribly sorry, you're outside of or well, we don't deal with that or can you deal with another department? If you make it difficult for me to try and solve the problem you created, you're really going to be in hot water. So being able to recover well and enabling staff to confidently, and that's a quite an intentional word. I love it when a brand makes a mistake and a member of staff owns it. They say, we should never have done that. This is what I'm going to do. And this is what else I'm going to do because I realize that you are very busy. But da, da, da. And they do all these things. And I think, do you know what? That was amazing. I trust them yes. so that if they make a mistake again, I know they're going to deal with it. Imagine how it is if you have a problem, they deal with it really badly. How are you going to feel about that brand, knowing that something else might go wrong and you're going to have to spend another five hours trying to help them solve the yes. problem? It's never going to work. So that's what that means. There might be coaches, people within businesses, people who deal with clients and customers on a day-to-day -day basis. What would be your top tip for them for when things do go wrong, what should they do? Two things really listen because actually the problem they have with whatever has happened may not be the thing you think it is check in with them to make sure you've understood what the problem is because actually it might not be the typical answer you're looking for and then act do something that they will perceive is sufficient to eradicate that bad feeling two things listen and then act because actually what they hear from you is empty if there's no action as a consequence of what they've said to you. Thank you, that's a great top tip. And finally on, on, on your article, you mentioned around uh, people who work in customer-related roles could think about the memories they're creating for the individual rather than the experience they deliver in that moment. If you could just share a bit about what that looks like, please. The, um, so there's a hotel brand called the Ritz-Carlton and they think about the memory a customer has as well as the actual moment the customer is in. So if you just think about that for a second, if we think, right, I'm going to fast forward this person in the next few weeks, what's, what do we think they're going to think about this experience they've just had? It is a bit of a mind bend, but if you think about how they're going to remember it, then I think you act in a much more appropriate way at that moment in time. I wonder if we can look at some of the specifics of emotional intelligence, uh, specifically the themes of self-awareness, self-management, social awareness and relationship management. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, great. Well, in a nutshell, self-awareness is just being aware of how you feel and the emotions that go on in your own body. And using techniques like mindfulness, a bit of meditation, you are far more in tune with what you're feeling. And more recently, and I'm, I'm still learning, but knowing that an emotion is rising in me means that I choose to either let it come out or I choose actually that's not going to be helpful. So I'm able then to use some techniques to dissipate it. That's things like frustration or anxiety, that kind of stuff. So self-awareness is really being aware of how you feel. The self-management part is really about a positive outlook, choosing how you show up. And it's also around um, how you influence others with the way that you are. And we know that certain people are 
wired in certain ways. So actually, how are you going to show up in the very best way to get the very best outcome from that particular interaction? That's in work and that's in, in the home as well. For the social awareness, that's often empathy. And empathy, in fact, comes in three particular ways. There's cognitive empathy, which is, I think, what you feel, what you're feeling is like this. And so while I can identify it, I'm not taking it on. The next one is around um, the kind of emotional empathy, where I feel what you feel. I'm with you. I can feel exactly how sad or happy you are. So I'm, I'm, I'm really in the moment and I'm really able to empathize fully. And the last one is kind of compassionate empathy, where it's like the third, the third bit of your brain, which says, actually, I'm not only going to know how it feels, but I'm going to want to help you with that. And I'm going to do the very best I can to optimize on your happiness or help you alleviate the sadness that you feel, that kind of stuff. And obviously emotions are more complicated than those two, but that gives you an idea. The last one in this is relationship management. And often this is the thing that people forget about. And there's a bunch of components in here. And this is where Daniel Goleman, uh, the guy who popularized emotional intelligence says, this is where most people have to do the majority of work because emotional intelligence is not about just being nice. There's a bunch of articles in the Harvard Business Review that talk about people's lack of desire to take on conflict. And when I say take on conflict, that's the ability to use all your self-awareness, all your self-management and your social awareness to dissipate and prevent conflict from happening or where there is conflict to make sure it works in a progressive but not, uh, not a destructive way. So with those four kind of headlines, you have a bunch of things underneath, which means there's 12 components in total. What the uh, practitioners talk about is that you have to have the self-awareness first. You have to know yourself before you can take on any of the others. And that's why it's such a brilliant blend. I wonder if you can share with us in what way you're telling the world about your message on emotional intelligence. Well, anyone who knows me will know that LinkedIn at the moment is the place where I'm talking about it a lot. And I'm really reacting to the positive response that I've had. People seem to be so interested in this stuff. So I'm running webinars where I'm talking about the different dimensions of emotional intelligence, particularly emotional intelligence in customer experience. Um, I'm actually going to change part of the uh, work that I'm doing with the undergraduates because I think they need to know more about emotional intelligence. They seem to want to know more. So I'm modifying how I'm teaching the undergrads and I'm also going to be changing some of the training offer that I have. So in the new year, there's going to be emotional intelligence courses uh, and there's certainly going to be more blog action. Just a discussion, really, a two-way thing. How do people feel about it? What do they know about it? How are they finding it beneficial too? It sounds great. The more that you you research this area, the, the greater it has an impact on you personally as well in terms of the work that you're doing. And that's exactly it. So I'm still learning. Let's get that absolutely straight. You know, I've, I understand the theory. Uh, I wouldn't say that I am emotionally intelligent yet, but I'm working on it, work in progress. I've just started a, a course, actually, a one-year course with Daniel Goleman's team to develop my ability to practice emotional intelligence. Uh, and by the time that's done, I'll be a coach, which I think will be hugely exciting. Yeah. Oh, well, perhaps uh, when that's done, we'll get you back on the show. We can talk about what you've learned. And because I'd imagine with emotional intelligence, is there's not really, is there an end point? There's not really, is never, there? Never, never, ever. I mean, I've met coaches that are 
they've been practicing probably 20 years and I've met them on this course and they're still learning stuff and I find that fascinating you know there's more to understand about yourself there's so much because society is changing and because behaviors are changing we're presented with different demands we're as a species changing you know when you think about emotional intelligence you think about applied uh, intelligence so if you think about AI and you think about how automated life is becoming this need to know yourself and to know others seems to be even more important it's hugely exciting this is really great Sandra because what I'm understanding is that with emotional intelligence it starts with self-awareness it starts with understanding yourself understanding your emotions understanding your state your state absolutely and that's why this journey I've taken to do this qualification is so important to me because in actual fact I am still learning some of the techniques I'm being taught some of the practices that I'm practicing every day is bringing stuff up I didn't even know existed you know how on earth was I actually going straight to my emails as soon as I woke up I mean when you are conscious of this stuff you suddenly think, hmm, I'm not sure that's the best way to operate. So that's just one example of continually learning and just checking in whether you're being kind to yourself and if you're being present for others. Well, self-compassion sounds like it's an important Big thing, yeah. yeah, really big thing. And I think, you know, with the health and well-being agenda, there needs to be more discussion in this, in this particular area for sure. Thank you Sandra. As a lecturer, how do you use your skills in emotional intelligence to run effective courses, programmes? So uh, sometimes I think it's better to ask the students that but um, I, I try and check in before I start any lectures or seminars. Um, I'm definitely very acutely aware of the energy in the room uh, and I can certainly pick up I think on how students are feeling about the topics that we're covering. Um, I think that my ability to empathise with students and the pressure they're under, you know, being able to help them. So that's that compassionate empathy, being able to act in a particular way. And I also think, you know, even the relationship management part, you know, I'm a, I'm an, a challenging individual. I want the very best yes. for my clients. I want the very best for my students. And sometimes the things I have to raise aren't always palatable. They're not comfortable things. But being able to convey them in a way that gets the best out of the situation so people don't feel threatened or defensive, I think that's where I'm showing yeah. up. That's where you see the EI. Do you have any top tips, maybe one, maybe two, for coaches, people who want to run effective courses or programs? What would be your top tip for this is what you should definitely do from, from an emotional intelligence perspective, incorporate this into your courses and programs to make them more effective? One of the things that I've learned on the, the course that I'm running uh, and also the course that I'm on is journaling. So writing each day just something that you're feeling, something that you're experiencing, something that you've learned. It can even be on your phone. Just take a few minutes out every day just to make a note of something that's happened or something you've learned from, I think is hugely beneficial. So that probably would be my, my number one tip. Brilliant, thank you very much. Sandra, if I can ask you another question, please. What did you get from your work within the field of emotional intelligence that you did not expect? I took months out to do research for this paper, and I've worked as a customer experience consultant for 10 years. What I did not expect is the applicability 
of emotional intelligence in customer experience and the fact that I'm going to be developing a framework that I think will significantly help businesses make sustained change. I didn't expect that. I just expected to write an academic paper and it was going to be very nice and everyone's going to think, oh yes, very interesting. I did not expect to come across an idea that I think could be a game changer for some. Thank you, Sandra. Quick fire round now if I can. Three questions. Number one, what would be your top tip for managers looking to positively influence their workforce? Okay, um, I think having one-to-ones is a great thing. Why don't you ask your staff to take ownership of that one-to-one? Get them to have the agenda, number one. And number two, be quiet. Let them do the talking. So incorporate listening skills into... Absolutely. Thank you very much. Number two, what would be your top tip for people who want to have better conversations with relatives? Great question. I think to be completely present, turn your phone off. Put your laptop away, don't be distracted, go somewhere, even if it's somewhere within the house where you just won't be disturbed. And I think you will be surprised and delighted at the quality of that conversation. Yeah, because yeah, we talk we talk about emotional intelligence in the context of the workplace, but this is this is about this will impact every aspect of your life, won't it? And you know, even if, and I, I know this isn't ideal, but even if within your calendar you set aside a period of time every week to properly catch up, I think you'll be surprised at what comes out from that. And then that will become part of your normal behaviour. Thank you very much. Number three, what would be a top tip for how to apply the skills of emotional intelligence right now? I think two things, if I may. The first thing is, if you're able to meditate or just sit and be conscious of your breathing, that will help you be more mindful of what on earth is going on. We're rushing around all the time and we're on autopilot, so that's the first thing. And the second thing, I think, is to really think about what other people want out of life. Yes. To create that empathy. You know, when someone asks you a question, what's really going on? How can you serve them best? Thank you very much. Mythbuster. Thank you, Sandra. Mythbuster round now. What negative thing do people think will happen when they communicate to a group but does not? I think being able to say you don't know the answer is hugely powerful. And actually, my students even say to me, do you know what, when you don't know the answer, you say it, and then I know the next time I see you, you're going to have the answer. That's hugely powerful, because actually it kind of lets you be yes. slightly vulnerable, but actually it also states that you are present. Thank you, Sandra. I wonder when you look back at your career, is there something that you've learned along the way that you'd share with yourself when you started out? Um, I think to know yourself and have authenticity and integrity. And what I mean by that is quite late in my career, I had the confidence to say, I don't think that's going to be best for the business. I think that these things might serve these customers much better. I've spent a lot of time doing things that I think actually are wasteful. They've been applying somebody else's agenda, which isn't the best agenda for the business. And actually, it's not always a popular choice, but you'll know in your heart that you're doing exactly the right thing. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you very much for sharing your wisdom today. I wonder, now that we're coming to the end of the, of the show, I wonder if you can tell us what's next for Sandra Thompson. 
working really hard on my Daniel Goleman uh, Emotional Intelligence Certificate that's high up on the priority list, uh, delivering more emotional intelligence uh, curriculum for undergraduate and postgraduate. I'm definitely sensing that people are interested in this topic and I'm really keen to share everything that I'm learning um, because it's quite a journey uh, and I'm feeling really open to, to sharing that. Thank you, Sandra. And I know that people will be interested in finding out more about the work that you do, the article. If they do want to find out more, where can they find you? Probably the best place is on LinkedIn. Uh, so there are a few Sandra Thompsons out there. But if you look for Sandra Thompson and CX Educator, uh, you should find me pretty, pretty easily. And it'll be a great honour if you want to connect. We've talked about your article. And as I understand, you've also got a webinar that connects with that article. Can you let the listeners know how they can get in touch with those please yeah sure so you should be able to find this information on my linkedin profile uh, but i know sometimes people find it tricky to download so if you email me i'd be delighted to forward those assets on uh, the email address you'd need is sandra at exceedallexpectations.com but if you also look for me on linkedin uh, there's quite a few sandra thompsons out there but if you look out for me and i'm cx educator uh, then you'll find me Shout me a line, that'd be oh, fine. Brilliant, thank you very much, Sandra. I really appreciate today. I've really enjoyed, enjoyed listening to you and I've learned a lot and I'm going to go back and read the article and check out the webinar myself. Great. I'll add all those links into the show notes. So everybody that's listening, please do check out the show notes for those links to Sandra's details, the article, the webinar that are contained within the LinkedIn profile. Um, hopefully you've had a good time today, Sandra. Great. Loved it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Please do connect on the show notes for also my newsletter, where you get top tips for communicating with confidence. And again, Sandra's information will be there also. Thanks very much for listening. Speak to you next week. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit me at davidalamari.com.